Dave agus Fulcher Gabaliaclea. Hello and welcome to Dublin and welcome to the Fitzwilliam Hotel. Thank you for listening to this podcast, the special collaboration between the Fitzwilliam and me, Donald Fallon, a historian and an author based here in Dublin. I specialise in telling the story of the 1916 Rebellion, or as it's popularly known now across the world, the Easter Rising. This week-long event on the streets of Dublin a hundred years ago is considered to be the beginning of the road to Irish independence. That came in 1922, only six short years later. When we walk around the Dublin of 2016, it's easy for us to picture just what it was like a hundred years ago. Many of the buildings are still standing, and they bear the bullet holes of that fateful week. There are monuments to the men and women who risked everything, and in some cases gave everything, on the streets of Dublin. But you might be wondering, just what was the 1916 Rising all about? Well, I hope this walking tour will help you to get an understanding of the key concepts and ideas behind the Easter Rebellion. We're going to start our tour in a building just beside the Fitzwilliam Hotel. When you leave the hotel, take a right, and this will bring you towards the Royal College of Surgeons. I want to show you its bullet-scarred pillars. No better place to start. Now that you've left the Fitzwilliam Hotel and taken a right, you'll see our next-door neighbour, the Royal College of Surgeons. This is a medical school that's been in the city since the 18th century, but this building has been their home since the early 19th. It includes an interesting 1916 addition though. Look in those pillars. In the pillars of this building you can clearly see the end product of machine gun fire. Machine guns, 18-pounder heavy artillery and even a gunboat were used on the streets of Dublin during the Rising. Remember, 1916 was right in the middle of the First World War, and many of the same weapons that were being used across the European continent were used here in Dublin. This building was occupied in 1916 totally by accident. What do I mean by that? Now turn around and you'll see, across the way, St Stephen's Green Park. It was the park that was occupied by the rebels in this area of the city at the beginning of the 1916 Rising. But ultimately, they had to abandon the park. It proved near impossible to occupy a large public space. The Rising began at 12 noon on the 24th of April, Easter Monday, with a moment of great symbolism. A schoolteacher named Patrick Pierce read a proclamation of independence across the river on what's now O'Connell Street. As he was reading that document, armed men and women were occupying positions right across the city. From the Royal College of Surgeons, go across the street. You see the statue of the man sitting in St. Stephen's Green? Well, that's our next stop. The man sitting outside St. Stephen's Green is Lord Ardlin, or Arthur Edward Guinness. A famous brewer and philanthropist, he's remembered for opening this park to the public in 1880. Little did he know when he gifted St Stephen's Green to the people of Dublin, it would become an urban battlefield site in 1916. The park was occupied by members of what was called the Irish Citizen Army, a small band of revolutionaries aligned to the trade union movement. Famously, when this park was occupied, the second in command was a woman named Countess Markovich. Not a very Irish name, you might be thinking. Well, she was born Constance Gorboot in Islington, in North London, but having married a Polish man along the way, she became known as the Countess Markovich. 
a Republican and a Socialist. She was in charge of the small band of rebels who seized this park, along with Michael Mallon, a veteran of the British Army who had served in India. The occupation of the park took many people by surprise, including James Kearney, its beloved park keeper. Kearney found his place in the history books by acting as if the 1916 Rising just wasn't happening at all. Twice a day during the week-long insurrection, Kearney proceeded to feed the ducks of St Stephen's Green. If you walk into the green and look right, you'll see the park keeper's house. That was home to James Kearney. That's the house he left twice a day during the Easter Rising. But we're not going that way. We're going to enter St Stephen's Green and take a left. This will bring us past the statue of Robert Emmett, a famous Irish revolutionary who led an abortive insurrection in 1803, an attack on Dublin Castle, not far from where we're standing. Emmett's rebellion was jokingly referred to by some at the time as a two-hour drunken riot. At least the 1916 Rising lasted longer than that. When the rebels seized control of this park, one of the first things they did was dig trenches here. Trenches were all the rage in 1916. At Gallipoli, the Somme and in many other places, they were being dug morning, noon and night. But trenches counted for nothing in an urban environment like this. And the British Army responded to this by placing machine guns on top of neighbouring buildings and firing into the green. Among the rebels in the St Stephen's Green garrison in 1916 was Margaret Skinner, a school teacher from Glasgow. She was the only female rebel to be injured during the fighting. We're only spending a brief time in the park, but going through the gates past Lord Ardalan or Arthur Edward Guinness, take a left, walk by the statue of Robert Emmett, and we're heading towards what's known in Dublin as Traitor's Gate or Fusilier's Arch, the large imposing gate that leads into the park. You'll know it when you see it. Straight in front of you, you should see the Fusilier's Arch come into view. And I told you, you'd know it when you see it. This big, imposing British Army monument certainly stands out in St Stephen's Green. It was unveiled in 1907, so at the time of the Easter Rising, it was nine years old. It's a monument to the Boer War, fought in South Africa between 1899 and 1902. If you walk around it, you'll see place names. Ladysmith, Talana. Calenzo. These are all battles of the war in South Africa. Believe it or not, the Boer War is an important part of the 1916 story. One of the executed leaders of the Rising, John McBride, even led a small band of Irishmen in South Africa who fought against the British. There's an old saying among Irish Republicans that England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And even though that war happened on another continent entirely, many young Irishmen were willing to fight in it. He wasn't the only 1916 veteran to fight in South Africa. Another, Thomas Byrne, also fought in the Easter Rising and the Boer War. But the relevance of this archway to the 1916 Rising isn't just the fact that some Irishmen fought in both the Boer War and the Rebellion. Look in the side of the monument and you can clearly see it's peppered by machine gun fire. Fusilier's Arch, or Traitor's Gate as Dubliners call it, was unfortunate enough to be between the Royal College of Surgeons, where we stood earlier on, and the United Services Club, which was occupied by the British Army. They had a machine gun on top of a building that was just beside where Topshop is today. That machine gun did immense damage to the rebels in St Stephen's Green and to this poor, unfortunate archway. Across from Fusilier's Arch is Grafton Street, one of the main shopping streets of Dublin. And we're going to go down Grafton Street now. 
it would lead us towards College Green and Trinity College. On the way, I'll talk a little bit about shopping in Dublin a hundred years ago. So now we're walking down Grafton Street, one of the main shopping streets of Dublin, and it seems a good time to talk about shopping in Dublin a century ago. One of the phenomenons of the 1916 Rising was the widespread outbreak of looting in the city. Not entirely surprising, Dublin was one of the poorest cities in Europe, and believe it or not, about a third of the people of the city were living in tenements. Most of the looting was confined to the Sackville Street or O'Connell Street area across the River Liffey, but there was also some on this street. In fact, the Illustrated London News ran a picture of an emptied florist on Grafton Street. The first shops that were emptied by the Dublin looters were shoe shops, and that tells us quite a lot about the poverty of the city. But children will be children, and as the rising progressed, they moved on to other stores. Noblet Sweet Shop and Lawrence's Toy Shop were early victims of the mob. Grafton Street is home to many institutions, as are the streets around it. While you're in Dublin, I'd recommend dropping down Chatham Street and visiting Neary's, which is a much-loved Dublin institution. On Grafton Street itself, you'll find Bewley's Cafe. It's been closed in recent times for restorations, but will be opening again in 2016. Bewley's was a popular meeting place with William Butler Yeats and others. Yeats was a founding member of the Abbey Theatre, born in 1904. The first rebel to die in 1916, Sean Connolly, was a much-loved actor from the Abbey Theatre. There was an entire cultural movement around the 1916 Rising. Many of the rebels were Irish language activists, poets and playwrights. Sometimes the rebellion is called a rebellion of poets and school teachers, and that's somewhat fair. Many of the business names have changed on this street. The famous Switzers is no more, for example. You'll find Brown Thomas there today. But even a hundred years ago, this street was associated with good shopping in Dublin, and that might explain what drew some looters towards it. Many of the items that were looted were later recovered from Dublin tenements. Have a good look around Grafton Street. You'll definitely want to come back here later on for some shopping. But we're heading for College Green at the very bottom of the street. That will bring us to Trinity College, an important part of the 1916 story. Now that we've walked down Grafton Street, we're going to come to College Green, which is one of the main arteries of the city. It's also home to two historic institutions, Trinity College Dublin, established in 1592, and the Old Irish Parliament, now the Bank of Ireland College Green. This area is quite busy at the moment, there's a lot of work going on for the Lewis, the tram system, but we're going to step just inside the railings of Trinity College Dublin and take a little break there. You'll see two statues, one of Edmund Burke and the other Oliver Goldsmith, two graduates of Trinity College. Edmund Burke once famously remarked that those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. Burke and Goldsmith, though, are in the two only famous graduates of this college. Jonathan Swift was educated here, and so was Edward Carson. That might be a new name to you, but Edward Carson was very much the father of unionism in Ireland a hundred years ago, at the time of the 1916 Rising. What does that mean? Well, he and those like him believed that Ireland's place was ultimately within the British Empire. Carson is forever associated with Ulster Unionism and the belief that the north of the country was a separate political entity from the south. He remarked the prospect of Irish home rule that home rule was Rome rule. In other words, an independent Ireland would be a Catholic state which could not look after its Protestant minority. 
Trinity College Dublin would have been an institution associated with that minority. It was founded by Royal Charter of Queen Elizabeth I in 1592, and believe it or not, for the first 200 or so years of its existence, Catholics were excluded from this institution. College policy changed in the 1790s, and Catholics could come here, land-owning Catholic men of above a certain wealth, that is, but they tended not to. And believe it or not, the church actively forbade Catholics from coming here right into the early 1970s. The joke on the streets of Dublin was that young men may loot, perjure and shoot. They may even have carnal knowledge. However depraved, their souls will be saved if they don't go to Trinity College. You needed a letter of special dispensation, essentially a letter of permission to justify your presence here. The rebels did not occupy Trinity College Dublin in 1916, but they did intend to. There was confusion in the days before the Rising. With orders and countermanding orders, it was unclear if there was an uprising going ahead at all. In the end, less than 2,000 rebels actually took part in the Easter Rising. That meant that they weren't able to occupy all the buildings they'd planned to, including the college. This college was defended in 1916 by an odd collection of men. You had the Officer Training Corp, an armed body of men based on campus, but you also had a ragbag collection of soldiers on leave from World War I. Canadians, men from Australia and New Zealand, all of them took part in defending this college against the rebels of 1916. Look up where the flag is flying, look at the rooftop of Trinity College Dublin and try and picture those men standing there a hundred years ago. The roof of Trinity gave them a good clear line of fire down onto O'Connell Street, or Sackville Street as they called it, where we'll be going later on, and also up Grafton Street, which you've just came down. No doubt the presence of armed men on top of Trinity College did much to stop the looters of Grafton Street. Both rebels and soldiers, including the young Arthur Charles Smith of the Royal Hazars, were buried on campus during the 1916 Rising, but their bodies are to be found today in military cemeteries. From Trinity College Dublin, we're going to make our way just across the street to the old Irish Parliament, or the Bank of Ireland. It should be easy to recognise, it's the building with no windows. Take the traffic lights across to the old Irish Parliament. So, having crossed College Green, you're standing outside the Old Irish Parliament, or the Bank of Ireland, College Green. This building is only open today in regular banking hours. It is, after all, a functioning branch of a bank. And looking at it, you don't really get a sense of its remarkable history. This was the first building of its kind anywhere in the world. You're looking at the world's first dual-chambered, purpose-built parliament. In other words, the first building of its kind constructed for politics anywhere in the world. Its foundation stone was laid in 1729, at a time when Dublin was very much considered the second city of the British Empire. What is the connection between this Parliament and the 1916 walking tour of Dublin? Well, when we think about the 18th century, we don't necessarily think of institutions like this. We think instead of the storming of the Bastille or the guillotine on the streets of Paris or maybe Thomas Paine and the rights of man. Well, well, Ireland was no exception from what was happening in other places in the late 18th century and Irish republicanism was born at that time too. Look up in the front of this building and carved into it you'll see the royal coat of arms, the lion and the unicorn. The lion represents England, while the unicorn represents Scotland. And by being here, it reminds us that Dublin was then a city of empire. The idea of breaking those empires in the 18th century was a popular one, at least among a certain class of men. Theobald Wolfe Tone, from a comfortable, privileged background, a graduate of Trinity College, where we've just been, is often considered to be the founding father of Irish republicanism. And he was part of a body of men known as the United Irishmen, who attempted revolution in the 1790s. 
Not only were they politically inspired by the ideals of the French Revolution, they looked to the French for military support. And their rebellion in 1798 is known in Ireland now as the Year of the French. Unfortunately, Ireland's attempted Republican Revolution in the late 18th century was a military failure, but it did ultimately lead to the closure of this Parliament. Quite remarkably, in the aftermath of that failed rebellion, the Irish Parliament was convinced, or indeed rather forced, to vote for its own abolition. You heard that right. The Parliament that you're looking at voted itself out of existence in 1800, when it passed a hugely controversial act known as the Act of Union. From that point onwards, Ireland was to be governed directly from Westminster in London. Why did they vote for this? Well, fear was undoubtedly the main factor. Irish parliamentarians who sat inside this building and perhaps their political superiors in London were both panicked by the prospect of revolution in this country. Notice that the parliament is literally just across the street from Trinity College. Well, one great joke at its expense in the 18th century went half a stone's throw from the college, half a world from any knowledge. The loss of the Irish parliament had an enormous impact on Irish life. We were governed directly from Westminster, from 1801 until the 1920s. That created all kinds of tensions and difficulties. Some of the worst days in Irish history occurred in the 19th century, like the famine of the 1840s. And at that time, Ireland was disconnected from its political powers in Westminster. Successive generations of Irish nationalists tried to bring this parliament back home. They called themselves home rulers. What that meant was that they believed Ireland could remain in the British Empire on the condition it had her own parliament. Daniel O'Connell, known in Ireland as the Liberator, Charles Stuart Parnell, the uncrowned King of Ireland, and later John Redmond, all tried to bring this parliament back to Dublin, believing that an Irish parliament for Ireland in Dublin was crucial to the material well-being of the nation. We're going to head around the corner though, from the Irish Parliament, we're going to turn onto Westmoreland Street. And that's going to bring us towards the River Liffey. We're heading towards O'Connell Street, which really is the epicentre of the 1916 story. We're walking down Westmoreland Street, which today is largely occupied by retail units. And at the bottom of Westmoreland Street, you'll come to the O'Connell Bridge, which brings you over the River Liffey. Stop at the O'Connell Bridge, having crossed over the lights, and look onto O'Connell Street. What you can't help but notice is the spire of light. It's 121 metres tall in the centre of the street. Dubliners don't call it the spire of light or the monument of light. It's more commonly known in the city as the spire or the spike. Well, you might not be surprised to hear it wasn't there in 1916. But if you were standing here looking over onto O'Connell Street, you would see Nelson's Pillar. A little bit like Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square in London, Admiral Horatio Nelson had a monument erected in his honour here in Dublin. Air Monument, however, had a great advantage on its London equivalent. We put a staircase in it and a viewing platform on top, and for a very small fee, any visitor to Dublin could climb up Nelson's Pillar. It was exactly where the spire is today, so try and picture Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square there, and you get some idea what it looked like. What would Admiral Nelson have thought of the 1916 Rising? Well, he had the greatest view of it. He stood up there on top of that pillar, looking down on the people of Dublin with his one good eye. Nelson's pillar was very controversial from the time it was unveiled in 1809, but it did come in handy for the rebels. When the rebels were sprinting from one side of the street to the other in 1916, the doorway of Nelson's pillar offered a much-needed respite. 
Some newspapers around the world reported that the rebels tried to blow up Nelson's Pillar during the rebellion. That was the last thing on their minds, however, and Nelson withstood Easter week. Where is Nelson's Pillar today? Why the spire of light? In 1966, on the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, a group of Republicans took it upon themselves to bomb the pillar. The bomb went off at 1.32 in the morning on the 8th of March, 1966. So, this year marks the golden jubilee of the collapse of Nelson's Pillar. It reminds us that in many ways the streetscape of Dublin has changed since the Easter Rising. Head over onto O'Connell Street, the main street of Dublin. and At the top of the street, in the centre of it, you'll see a statue of Daniel O'Connell. At the base of the monument are four winged figures, but O'Connell stands proudly at the top of it. Take the traffic lights to O'Connell Street and stop at the Daniel O'Connell statue. And we've made it to O'Connell Street. We've made it to the north side of Dublin and the main thoroughfare of the Irish capital. And this street is named after Daniel O'Connell, uh, whose monument stands at the very top of it. Daniel O'Connell has been looking down over O'Connell Bridge, or then called the Carlisle Bridge, since the monument was unveiled in the 1880s. Daniel O'Connell was a political reformer of the 19th century, but crucially, Crucially, he was a political reformer who rejected the use of violence. He believed in constitutional reform and O'Connell is remembered for winning Catholic emancipation in 1829. An incredible piece of legislation, it removed many of the restrictions against the Irish Catholic majority. Daniel O'Connell, though, if he was a pacifist, why include his statue on this tour? Well, the answer is in the monument itself. Walk around the Daniel O'Connell statue and you should be able to make out the bullet holes of the 1916 Rising. The four winged figures in the base of the monument represent patriotism, courage, elegance and fidelity. And you can clearly see two of these monuments have taken bullet holes in 1916. One carries a bullet in her arm, the other in the centre of her right breast. Truth be told, though, there are bullets up and down the O'Connell monument. If you have the time to walk around it, you might be surprised just how many you could spot. The damage in the O'Connell Monument is really the end product of a firefight we talked about earlier on. Remember at Trinity College, we mentioned that the college was defended from the rooftops. Well, men at Trinity were exchanging fire with rebels on Sackville Street or O'Connell Street. And the poor old Daniel O'Connell statue, it just happened to be in the middle of all of that. Take your time to admire this impressive monument, the work of John Henry Foley, one of the most talented sculptors to ever work in Dublin. And when you're done, we're going to walk down O'Connell Street. We're heading towards the General Post Office in the centre of the street, just beside the Spire of Light. That was the Rebel Headquarters. We'll be coming back this way in a little while, but for now, our focus is on this street. As you're walking down O'Connell Street, try and picture what this would have been like a hundred years ago. Think about the looters on the street who were emptying it, and also think about the rebels who are building barricades. The rebels had studied history intimately. They'd looked at things like the Paris Commune of the 1870s and they tried to apply the lessons of history here in Dublin. So barricades were thrown up all across the city. Remember, this was right in the midst of the First World War. So there was a certain hostility towards the rebels from a section of the populace. And they definitely made their feelings known on this street in particular. You often hear people talk about separation women. They were the women dependent on the income they got from husbands fighting in the First World War. The wives of those who were risking life and limb for the empire in Flanders, Gallipoli and other places. So we have looters, we have rebels building barricades, and we have Dublin women shouting at those rebels. Quite chaotic indeed. 
Some of the business names on this street haven't changed in a hundred years. Eason's, the newsagents, was there. So too was Cleary's, just across the street. But we're going to the general post office, and when you get there, stop at its historic columns. A little bit like the Daniel O'Connell monument, if you walk around the pillars of the GPO, you'll see the bullet holes and the shrapnel damage of 1916 very clearly. This is a very impressive building, and I recommend looking at it from a few different angles if you want to get a sense of what it was like a hundred years ago. Only the pillars have survived from the original GPO. The rest of the building was almost totally reconstructed in the aftermath of the rebellion. Try and picture the GPO garrison, several hundred men strong. They now estimate over 450 rebels made up the garrison that occupied this building. They weren't only men, there were women too. Winifred Kearney, one woman who fought in the 1916 Rising, was known affectionately as the typist with the Webley. She was secretary to one of the leading rebels, James Connolly, and when they occupied this building, she came running in with her Webley revolver in one hand and her typewriter under her arm. Michael Collins, better known around the world perhaps as Liam Neeson, thanks to the Hollywood film of 20 years ago, Michael Collins was in this building too, a young man in his 20s. He served as aide-de-camp to Joseph Mary Plunkett, one of the leaders of the rebellion. It was outside this building and under its portico where the rebels first read their proclamation of independence. A schoolteacher named Patrick Pierce was given the honour of doing that, or Porig MacPierus. An Irish language enthusiast, Pierce is remembered for saying that he believed in an Ireland that was Neo-Onsair Gaelic Cumba, an Ireland not only free but Gaelic as well. He read the proclamation with trembling hands under this very portico. It's a powerful document, beginning Irish men and Irish women. It goes on to say that the Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities, before promising to cherish all the children of the nation equally. At auction, copies of that document have sold for over €250,000. The rebels printed around a 1,000 copies of their proclamation. The reason it became quite rare is simple. Most of them were pasted around the city onto walls for the general population to read. When the rebels occupied the general post office, the first thing they did, unsurprisingly, was break the windows and barricade themselves in. Some of the first shots of the rising were fired out of the broken windows of the GPO. But, truth be told, it wasn't until the Wednesday of Easter week, two days in, that the GPO came under sustained attack. The British responded to the Easter Rising by placing a ring of steel around the city and outnumbering the rebels. But they also deployed a gunboat, the Helga, on the River Liffey. And from the Wednesday of Easter week, the Helga was shelling the general post office. Try and imagine it, the roof of the GPO burning. Looters running throughout the streets, dead bodies lying in the centre of Sanctus, chaos and pandemonium. We're going to make our way back up towards the River Liffey, and when you get to the top of O'Connell Street, we're going to take a right. We're going to head down the river and towards Dublin's famous landmark bridge, the Haypenny Bridge. We'll talk a little bit more about the River Liffey and its importance to Easter Week when we get there. Having walked back up O'Connell Street and taken a right, we're heading towards the Haypenny Bridge, which is a famous Dublin landmark we'll talk about very soon. As we're walking along the River Liffey, though, maybe think about taking the boardwalk. It runs right beside the river, and it'll bring you up towards the bridge. The river plays a very important part in the story of Dublin, and indeed in the story of the 1916 Rising. Even the very name of the city, Dublin, you might be wondering what that means. Well, it comes from Dove Lynn, or Blackpool, a historic point where the River Liffey that we're walking along met the River Poggle that runs below Dublin. 
1916, though, the Liffey is associated with the Helga, the gunboat that sailed up the River Liffey. The Helga fired about 40 rounds during the 1916 Rising, but she is an important part of the story. A gunboat in the river, as you can imagine, played no small role in reversing the story of Easter Week. The rebels just could not match it. So, what weapons were the rebels using? Most of what the rebels had were known as Hote Rifles, weapons they had smuggled into Ireland through the seaside town of Hote in 1914. But they were outdated single-shot rifles from the Franco-Prussian War, and truth be told, they weren't worth a damn, especially when put up against the gunboat. If you're walking along the boardwalk or walking along the Liffey Walls, you'll see the Hapenny Bridge come into view soon, the Metal Bridge, the Pedestrian Bridge over the River Liffey. Stop at the Hapenny Bridge, and we'll very briefly talk about it. And we've made it to the Hapenny Bridge, which is a real Dublin landmark. Walk into any tourist shop in Dublin and you'll find this bridge on as many postcards as you care to buy. But the Hapenny Bridge has been carrying Dubliners across the river since 1816. And that means two things. One, this year is its bicentenary, it turns 200. But also the fact it was there in 1916 and we know that the rebels crossed over it. One rebel gave a great story, J.J. Scollin, of having to cross this bridge at a time when it still costs money. Think about the name, Halfpenny Bridge. That comes from Halfpenny Bridge. What you're looking at was a toll bridge for the first hundred years of its existence. This young rebel remembered that, incidentally, the toll man was still on duty on the bridge and he tried to collect the halfpenny toll from us. Needless to say, he did not get it. No attempt was ever made to collect tolls on the bridge again during the rebellion. So the idea of rebels in 1916 running over this toll bridge, I think, is quite a funny one. If you go across the Hapenny Bridge, you'll see a hole in the wall, Merchant's Arch, and we're going to go through that and into Temple Bar. We're going to very briefly talk about what Temple Bar was like a hundred years ago during the rebellion. But really where I want to get us to is City Hall and Dublin Castle, two hugely important parts of the 1916 story, not far from where we're standing. Now that we've come through Merchant's Arch, the hole in the wall that brings you into Temple Bar, keep going straight. In front of you, you'll see the 1960s Central Bank building looming large over this area. We're walking towards it, so we're essentially just going straight on from the Hapenny Bridge. I don't think any area of Dublin has changed as much in the last hundred years as this. A hundred years ago, walking around this area, you would have seen warehouses, factories and tenements. This was very much the industrial centre of the city. Temple Bar is an area worth exploring when you have some time. The National Photographic Archive is to be found here. And for the year that's in it, they're hosting an exhibition called Rising, looking at photographs of the Revolutionary Period. There are also a number of other cultural institutions to be found dotted throughout the Temple Bar area. We're heading towards the Central Bank and onto Dame Street, which is one of the busy streets of the city. It's in front of the bank. When we get onto Dame Street, we're taking a right, and that will bring us up towards City Hall and Dublin Castle. So having emerged onto Dame Street and taken a right, we're walking towards the historic City Hall, one of the rebel positions from the Easter Rising. City Hall, you'll see it on the left-hand side, like many of the great 18th century buildings of Dublin, it bears the scars of the 20th century. You can clearly see in its pillars too that it was occupied by the rebels a hundred years ago. City Hall is open Monday to Saturday between the hours of 10 and a quarter past five. If it's open, I recommend stepping inside to its historic rotunda. In the centre of the rotunda, you'll see the city motto and coat of arms. 
Wonderfully ironic and totally ill-fitting, translated, the motto of Dublin proclaims that happy is the city where citizens are obedient. It was on the roof of this building, City Hall, that the first rebel fatality of the 1916 Rising was endured. Captain Sean Connolly was a talented young actor in the Abbey Theatre, and he also worked here in City Hall in the motor tax offices. City Hall was one of the first rebel positions to fall. The fact it was right on top of Dublin Castle, the fortified home of British rule in Ireland, meant the rebels were unable to hold it. The building was designed by the celebrated 18th century architect Thomas Cooley and it's considered one of the most notable buildings of its time in Dublin today. Walking around the side of City Hall, however, you'll come to Cork Hill and it brings us into Dublin Castle, the final stop of our tour. Entering the gates of Dublin Castle and Cork Hill, you're standing where the very first shots of the rising were heard and Constable O'Brien, policeman on duty, fell right where we are now standing. Entering Dublin Castle, you get a sense that you're in a truly historic place. And believe it or not, the castle has been here since a royal charter was granted in 1204, built in the days of the Anglo-Norman conquest of Ireland. This was seen as an impregnable symbol of British rule in Ireland for many generations. As you walk into the castle from Cork Hill, look up and you'll see a statue of Lady Justice. She is perhaps the most ridiculed monument in Dublin. Though she stands on Dublin Castle, she looks away from the city. Now that you've entered the main courtyard, it's worth mentioning that the rebels had intended to seize this place. As the most symbolically important British institution on the island of Ireland, they were by no means the first rebels to plan the taking over of this place. Though Dublin Castle was the administrative centre of British rule in Ireland 100 years ago, it wasn't well guarded on the first day of the Easter Rising. In fact, had the rebels known that, they could perhaps have seized it. It was here in the aftermath of the Rising that James Connolly, one of the leaders of the insurrection, was kept under armed guard. Connolly had been badly wounded during the Rising, and at the time of his execution, he was famously tied to a chair, unable to stand. While the 1916 Rising began at midday on the 24th of April 1916, it was largely over by midnight on the following Saturday, and Dublin Castle succeeded in regaining control of the country. The rebels were outnumbered and outgunned, but everything was to change in the weeks that followed. It was the execution of the rebel leaders, 14 in Dublin, one in Cork, one in London, that ultimately changed the narrative. The poet and playwright, William Butler Yeats, who knew many of the rebels personally, wrote about this in his celebrated poem, Easter 1916. And naming the dead men, he said, I write it in a verse, Macdonough and Macbride, Connolly and Pierce. Now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, they are changed and changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Incredibly, Dublin Castle was handed over only six short years after the rebellion. On the 16th of January 1922, Michael Collins, a veteran of the Easter Rising, was handed the keys to Dublin Castle. Legend has it that when the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland told him he was seven minutes late, Collins replied, we've been waiting 700 years, you can have the extra seven minutes. While independence came in 1922, make no mistake about it, that story begins with the Easter Rising. And the fact it was Collins, a veteran of the Easter Rising, who received the keys of the castle, that is important in itself. We've walked some distance today. We've travelled through St Stephen's Green. We've seen the General Post Office. We've crossed over the Haypenny Bridge. You might be tired and you might feel you need some rest and relaxation. You'll get plenty of that back in the Fitzwilliam Hotel where we began. If you're suffering from weary muscles or tired feet, maybe you'd want to drop into the spa therapist, Ursula Daly, in the spirit spa of the hotel. You could always drop into the Inn on the Green Bar and have a drink and think about all you've just taken in. 
you could drop into the Citron restaurant or even check out Kevin Torrenton's wonderful restaurant. One of Ireland's leading chefs, Kevin Torrenton is 25 years in the business of culinary adventure. I hope this tour has helped you to get an understanding of the events of 100 years ago. We've seen the bullet holes, we've stepped inside the buildings and I hope I've brought you closer to the 1916 Rising. This was undoubtedly a pivotal event in the story of modern Ireland and in the making of an independent Irish state. Please enjoy your stay in the Fitzwilliam Hotel and enjoy your stay in Dublin. Thank you for listening to this special podcast. <laughs>